anyway, let's dive in here. So you know, when I, when I sat down um, to write the introduction to this talk, which is always the hardest part for me to write, I don't know why, um, I'm trying to do my best you know, Mike Gathright impression and make just a cheesy dad joke, and I just can't all the time. Um, and so I started to kind of write this joke about how fall kind of all of a sudden came upon us this week as if out of nowhere. And then I realized, I was like, it's October 13th, right? This is, this is how it's supposed to be. Like, this is appropriately fall. It's neither early or late. It's just on time, which is not a way that I tend to see things, right? There's a lot of hyperbole and drama in my life. I live in the extremes. I'm never just whelmed. I'm either overwhelmed or underwhelmed. <laughs> it's either underrated or overrated. It's all or nothing. My wife, my wife tells me it's exhausting. Um, <laughs> but it's just the water I swim in, you know? I'm either panicked or bored, right? There's no in-between of those two feelings. So especially in the fall, I don't know if you feel this way. Did anyone, else, did anyone else's planner hit them in the face like a bag of watermelons, right? Like September 6th came and everybody just woke up all of a sudden. Um, it's, like, it's like after Labor Day, we just started going three times our normal speed, um, which it sounds like maybe that's my fault. Uh, it sounds like I didn't pace myself in August very well. Um, but it feels like last week was Easter to me. And, and now we're talking about Christmas presents. So, so there you go. I blame our summer mostly. Uh, we had just an unbelievable summer. We had an incredible summer uh, full of fun. And it was just full of adventure. It was plenty of hard. We had a, we had a really hard summer too in a lot of ways. But, but I'll remember this summer for a very, very long time. If, if I may, I just have one quick highlight, um, which isn't quick, I'm sorry. I have one highlight, uh, and yes, I am gonna brag about my kid because that's just what I do. Um, and fair warning, I didn't have any bow in my last talk, and so I'm gonna over-index a little bit on the bow stories. Um, so just bear with me on that one. So there was this one weekend in July where we just decided to pack it all in. You know, like, let's get the whole summer bucket list done in one weekend. And so our friends were in town from Memphis. They had brought up their camper, and they were going to let us borrow it. Um, we, so we decided to take Bo on his first camping trip, um, which I don't know the last time you went camping, but it's a much different ball game than when I was a kid. Uh, the KOA in Coloma, they had a pool and this giant jump pillow. It was like a trampoline, but like something like an orb coming up out of the ground, and they had a putt-putt golf course. It was like a resort, kids derping around on their bikes all night long. Uh, Bo was in heaven. He was in his own little resort made for him. Um, and anyway, so on our last day, we're packing up, we're getting ready to go, we're getting everything ready, and we decide, you know what? Why don't we just head to the pool one last time, right? Let's go to the pool, let's enjoy uh, our last hours there. Um, and it was great. It was super fun. It was a nice way to end our time there. But as we're wrapping up now at the pool, it's finally time for us to go. And so we get Bo out of the pool, which is an adventure on your own. As many of you know, four-year-olds don't like to get out of the pool. Uh, but we get him out. We dry him off. We take off his life jacket. And a family that we knew comes into the pool. And the grown-ups can now understand what happened next. We, we get into conversation. Everything stalls. And things start to fall apart for Bo. He just is getting distracted. And so he starts wandering about the pool. Uh, still has his swimsuit on, but no life jacket. And so you can start imagining what's about to happen next, right? He's wandering closer and closer to the edge of the pool until, sure enough, 
without a life jacket in the deep end, he falls in. And so I catch it out of the corner of my eye and I swiftly get over to the edge of the pool preparing for the worst that he's, I can just see him at the bottom looking up at me terrified when no, his head pops right up above the water with a big old smile on his face and he just swims away as if he was born in the water. This was actually him literally three minutes later. This was him. Um, just, <laughs> it's not a joke. That was three minutes after that because we ended up staying for a while and it's just, he is something else. Um, it's, it's wild. And so we get home in the afternoon and we, we get him down for a nap. I take a nap, Allie takes a nap, we're just exhausted. Uh, but we gotta get ready because tomorrow, in this, in this July weekend, we're going to Six Flags. Because like I said, we're packing it all in. And so um, I'm chilling in my chair, just maximum relaxation. I've got a golf tournament on, just hanging out. And uh, I hear Bo wake up from a pretty healthy nap and he, he waddles down the hallway. His eyes are still cloudy with like an uninterrupted or an interrupted REM cycle just behind his blinders. And he blubbers out, he goes, Daddy, can you take my training wheels off? Um, and my gut reaction is no, no, absolutely not. We have to spread these things out. We just lost the life jacket three hours ago. We can't lose both in the same weekend. I won't allow it. But that four-year-old persistence prevailed. And so there we were kneeling down in the driveway, taking the training wheels off and I'm all ready to go, right? My one of my first memories is my dad teaching me how to ride a bike. And so I've, some, I've set some pretty high expectations for this moment. Um, and so I set the camera up. I give him a 22 minute lecture on bike safety and road standards. And so he kicks his leg over his bike and I'm holding onto the handlebars and we just start rolling forward. And I'm coaching him the whole time, right? Like keep pedaling, don't, don't keep, or excuse me, keep your weight over your seat. Don't lean too far forward, stay balanced. And so he was getting annoyed with me um, like you would. And uh, after about two minutes of struggle, he just yells at me and he goes, dad, just let go. So I did. Because if he's going to trust me, I've got to trust him, right? And so I let go. And I kid you not, he just went. <laughs> As if born on a bike, he just rolled away off. And he's still rolling away. Um, at least it feels that way. And then, he, and then he yelled back at me. He goes, Dad, Dad, look at me. I'm doing it. Oh, man. Within five minutes, I'm sitting on the deck scrolling through Reddit. And he's just doing circles in the driveway. It's very anticlimactic, but, um, and so the story continues. Like I said, it's not quick. So the next day, we head to Chicago for a couple nights. I don't exactly remember why we chose to plan these moments back to back. It seems like we could have spread them out. Um, but nonetheless, the adventure continues, and we just had the best day at the amusement park, you know, all in one weekend, Bo's first camping trip. Bo's first roller coaster, his first bike ride, his first time in the deep end without a life jacket. And on the way home, we are exhausted, right? It's a righteous exhaustion. Allie and I just look at each other when we're proud and we're tired and we're just like, we did it, right? Just that feeling of we did it, we are the best. And so we get back to the hotel and we're, you, go, you know where this is going. We get back to the hotel and we get ready to crash, and I'm just like, give me a deep dish pizza and a cheesy TBS movie, and then it will be the perfect weekend, right? That's not the end of the story, though, because four-year-olds, as you know, as we drift closer to bedtime, right about that 15-minute mark before, you know, it's actually time to relax, 
that's when the energy kicks back up, right? And so there's no more exhaustion, there's just more chaos. And so I look up from Forrest Gump with an empty pizza box at my feet, and there's Bo jumping on the hotel bed. That's fine, kids jump on beds. The line, the line crosses when he begins jumping between the beds, <laughs> right? He's going back and forth. And so I warn him, I'm like, hey buddy, that's really not safe, you, you gotta stop it. And so he heard our warnings as encouragement, and then he proceeds to begin doing front flips between the beds. Um, and so my voice gets louder because he's not hearing me. And so I said, dude, knock it off. I don't want to go to the hospital tonight. And you may call me an Old Testament prophet, friends, because I kid you not, 25 seconds later, I hear that audible just thud, right? That unmistakable sound of flesh hitting something really hard. And then the howl, the screech, the scream. And in a weekend full of firsts, we added Bo's first ER visit to that list. 15 stitches across his eyebrow later, and our adventure finally came to an end. Um, and isn't, isn't that just life, y'all? It was just one weekend in July, but it serves as this reminder of what it's like to live life on this planet. It's life lived between the extremes, between front flips in the pool and front flips into a desk. Over the summer, Mike Gathright, um, I guess we're now into the fall, as we established earlier, it's appropriately fall. Mike Gathright has been, he's been taking us on a journey through the Gospel of John. Um, and this morning, I want to keep going in that direction. I want to I dive in, no pun intended, to chapter 16 and to see if there's anything there for us. So... In chapter 16 of John's Gospel, a little context, Jesus is in the middle of dinner with his disciples, right? The last four chapters up to this point have taken place in this room, at this meal, on this night. And this would end up being what, what we know now as Jesus' Last Supper. I think it's really interesting here that there's 20 chapters in John, and five of them are dedicated to this supper. 25% of John's writing is dedicated to this Last Supper. That's a pretty significant amount of time, considering the rest of it's like two years worth of it. So there must be something here for us. Um, so this would be the night, if we look at our timeline, if we look at our celebration time, this would be Thursday night in the Easter calendar. So tomorrow for them would be Good Friday, the day that we rem remember and recognize Jesus' death on the cross. So it's Thursday night. They're in an upper room and they're having dinner. It's, it's Jesus and his 12 closest friends and those who are serving them the dinner. That's it. It's Jesus with his closest friends. I wonder, if, I wonder why John dedicates this much time. I wonder if it's because this is the last time he remembers being with his friend. I wonder if it's the last time he remembers laughing with his friend. I wonder if it's the last time he remembers crying with his friend. If he looks back on this dinner as his final moments, as his final memories with his friend and his brother and his Messiah. So John is recounting Jesus' last words with his disciples. He's, he's, he's recapitulating this moment where Jesus describes how he will be betrayed and denied by two separate people who are both in that room. And after that, they take him away to be executed by the Roman state. He's predicting all this. He's prophesying all this. They're, they're going to come after him, and then they're going to come after his followers. 
And just the chapter before, at the end of it, Jesus says this to his disciples. When that happens, remember this. Servants don't get better treatment than their masters. If they beat on me, they will certainly beat on you. That's not the kind of message that we would necessarily want to raise a glass to, is it, at a final dinner with our best friend. So John chapter 16, it goes further, he says this, I've told you these things to prepare you for rough times ahead. They are going to throw you out of the meeting places. There will even come a time when anyone who kills you will think he's doing God a favor. This is Jesus. This is the Savior, the Messiah, the one who in his own words has been sent to save the world. And the version of the world that he's predicting, that he's leaving behind is one where his closest friends, his closest followers are being hunted and beaten and killed. So put yourself in the shoes of these disciples for a second. Right? You've given everything, your land, your family, your career, you've given everything to follow this teacher, this rabbi who claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior of all people, and now he's predicting his death and subsequently your death, and it all just seems to be coming to an end in this chaos. Remember, they don't have the whole story yet. They, Good Friday hasn't come. Easter hasn't come yet. It's Thursday. They don't have Bibles in the corner of that room. They are the Bible. They don't know how this is going to end yet. So imagine the devastation they must have felt as Jesus is telling them these things. And so Jesus senses this. He feels their sadness. He feels their trepidation. And he tries to comfort them. And in verse 16, it says, In a day or so, you're not going to see me. But then another day or so, you will see me. So he tries to riddle them with some levity, maybe. But this just confuses them. right? What the heck does that mean? And this is what Jesus says. Are you trying to figure out amongst yourselves what I meant when I said, in a day or so, you're not going to see me, but then another day or so, you will see me? Then fix your eyes firmly in your minds. You're going to be in deep mourning while the godless world throws a party. You'll be sad. You'll be very sad, but your sadness will develop into gladness. When a woman gives birth, she has a hard time. There's no getting around it. But when the baby is born, there is joy in the birth, the new life. This new life in the world wipes out the memory of the pain. The sadness you have right now is similar to that of that pain. But the coming joy is also similar. When I see you again, you'll be full of joy. And it will be a joy that no one can rob from you. And you'll no longer be so full of questions. There's something about this space between that Jesus is calling our attention to. This moment between the extremes, between the pain of existing and the beauty of new life being born. Jesus is using this metaphor of childbirth to try and bring explanation and comfort to his disciples, but it still doesn't answer the question that maybe we're asking right now. Why? Why does it have to be this hard? Right? Jesus, you're the Savior, the Messiah. Why so much suffering? Why so much division? It sure does feel like this could be a whole lot easier. Why does it have to be this hard?
I love that song. I cannot recommend that band more highly. Uh, I'm an evangelist for them. They're called, the, uh, they're called The War on Drugs, which has no relation to Nancy Reagan. But if you're looking for new music, I would highly recommend that you check them out. Their new album, I Don't Live Here Anymore, is, is, a, is a masterpiece, in my opinion, which is extreme and hyperbolic. Um, I love this line in that song. It says, am I just living in the space between the beauty and the pain and the real thing? And isn't that just it, right? Life is spent asking this question. Is this all there is? These brief moments of joy that are thinly spread out amongst a timeline of work and pain and sad news and bad diagnoses and at the end of it all, death. Is this really what living is, just drifting between beauty and pain? But why? It all comes back to why, doesn't it? And I wish I had an answer. I don't. I don't have an answer. I've got an idea. I've got an idea that's helped me make sense of it, and yes, that's where we're going this morning. Um, but it's helped me keep hold of my life and my, and my life of faith despite the pain of life. But is it an answer? No. Or at least I don't know. Maybe. That's where faith comes in, right? Faith is not necessarily the answers to our question. It's not certainty, but it's the trust that there is an answer to our questions whether or not we know what that answer is. So why? That's the question. Why do we suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? And maybe more specifically, why do bad things happen to me? Maybe that's the question we're asking. So like I said, I don't have the answer, but I do have an idea, and it starts with this. This world, the world we're living in, the world in which you are currently seated at St. Joseph High School in their auditorium at 11 what is it, 11.10? This world is the best of all possible worlds. Of all other possible versions of the universe, this one, the one we are presently living in right now is the best. And there is no alternative that would be better than the one that we are living in right now. And I believe this to be true. It's the foundation of how I view and live in the world. See, there's a, there are very few absolute truths in this world, but it would seem to be that the universal condition of human suffering is one of them. Right? Whether it's physical and visible suffer, suffering, right? like cancer or war or famine, or emotional or mental suffering, right? anxiety and depression, or interpersonal and relationship suffering, right? if we can reasonably expect to experience one or any or all of these at some point in our life. And I think as a, I think as a world and as a society, we're, we're, we're coming to grips with this reality, right? And it's devastating. We watch the news and it doesn't feel real. Like, like just in the last month, Hurricane Irma, the escalation in Ukraine, Notre Dame football, it's just one thing after another. It's gotten to a point where bearing witness to suffering is suffering on its own. But there's a second thing that I believe is equally true. I believe that there is a God a higher state of consciousness that set this world in motion with purpose and intention. 
And I believe that that God is on my side, and I believe that he is also on your side. And I believe that he has our, not mine, not yours, our best interest in mind. And I believe that just as I am a child of God, you are as well. But don't those two ideas just feel so juxtaposed, right? How can these two things be true? A God who creates with purpose and intention implies that the inevitable suffering of the world is intended. Whew. Okay, that's a lot. Just stick with me for a second, because I think, I think there's something here for us. Let's go back to the very beginning. Let's go back to Genesis 1. God, out of his uncontainable joy and love, he bursts forth a new creation, and if out of a mere moment of time, an endless void is filled with life and trees and mountains and lakes and every creature that you can imagine to call it home. And in that creation, he makes us, right? Man and woman, he made them in his own image. The creation was so incredible, it was so beautiful that God himself didn't just call it good, he called it, he called us, tov meod, that was a he, an old Hebrew word, tov means good, and translated from Hebrew, tov meod means the best of the best of the very, very best, is that when he, in all of his beautiful creation that he made, when he looked at us, he called us his tov Mayod, the best of the best of the very, very best. The Apostle Paul tries to capture it this way when he says, we are God's masterpiece, right? The king and the poet uh, David, he says in the Psalms, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so friends, when we say that the God of the universe created, the God who had our best interest in mind, when you say that he, that when he, yeah, when we say that he created us, do we believe that he did his best work? Do we believe that this all-powerful, all-present creator left it all in the field? Or did he hold back? Did he leave something out? Because if he did, if this isn't the best he's got, then this is just some big experiment, right? Some supernatural laboratory, and we're the guinea pigs. We're his little pets that are being put to the test. But we're people. We're not pets. We were made for a garden, not a cage. So this can't just be an experiment because what is it that God wants for us? Right? He wants joy. That's it. He wants us to experience the same joy and the same love and the same relationship that brought us into existence. Okay, one more step here. What is true about joy and what is true about love? They have to be chosen. Forced love is not love, right? Forced joy is not joy. That's manipulation and it's force. This is the best of all possible worlds because of the freedom to choose, the freedom to love, the freedom to rejoice. So God realizes that to create a world in which his most prized possession, his tov meod, us, in order to create a world where they can experience joy and love, it must also include the possibility of the opposite to be true. The antithesis to joy and love must also have a presence. 
This is the best of all possible worlds because of the freedom granted to us in our genesis and made possible through Christ's death on the cross. And we get to live and we get to choose how to live. There's no greater gift, I think, than that choice. So we're back in the hotel room, right? And we hear the scream and we woke right up. I think, I think Forrest was running through Vietnam with Bubba on his shoulder right at that point, but we, didn't, we weren't paying attention. We just heard the howl. Bo had hit his desk, Bo, Bo had hit his head on a desk that was positioned right next to the bed and he just overshot his flip, right? He overshot and under-rotated and he caught the corner perfectly right here, about a half inch above his eye. Um, and I knew it was serious right away. It was that kind of scream, um, the kind you never, ever, ever want to hear as a parent and you never want to hear it again. And so we were in the car within minutes and we're headed to the closest ER. And those initial moments were pretty traumatic, right? He, he was, he was kind of in and out of it, wanting to fall asleep, which is never his disposition, right? Blood is pouring out of this incredibly deep gash right above his left eye. I'm trying to figure out which hospital to go to and Siri's not taking me in the right direction and Allie's just trying to keep him awake and keep him calm until we get to the emergency room in Lake Forest and then we sat there for two hours. And when we finally get back to a room, it's 10.30 at night and the doctor walks in and he sees the cut on my kid's, and you know, on my kid's forehead and you know what the first thing he said was? Woof! You're not even a real word. This is a doctor at Northwestern. You didn't have a real word. He's woof! It was deep. It was really deep. I can't show you a picture. Um, anyway, it was clear that they were going to have to do some, do some stitches. There was no way around it. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, it's just some stitches. Um, but we expected that, right? We expected that there would be stitches and what that would mean. But stitches on your arm are very different than stitches on your eyebrow, I learned. And so they described what was about to happen. And at the end, the doctor, he says, you know, most parents choose to wait outside because it's incredibly uncomfortable to watch your kid go through something this difficult. But you can trust that your child is going to be okay and it's safe. We do plenty of these every single week. Um, but there really is no better way to do it than this way. And he said more than, he said more than anything um, that parents will get nauseous and that some have passed out uh, being in the room with their kid there. So, um, so I said I would stay. Uh, I don't do physical injury stuff well. Um, you can ask my friends. I, I look away every time there's a big hit in football because I just don't need to see limbs bend that way. Um, so when he asked if I was sure, I did, I did pause and reconsider it because uh, I, was, I was just as scared as he was. Then I looked at him. I looked at Bo and I, I saw how anxious and how scared and how much fear was in his eyes. And I thought, whatever I'm about to go through, it will not be worse than what he's about to experience. And the last thing I want for him is to go through with this. But even more than that, I would hate for him to have to do this alone. And so if this is the only way, then he will hear my voice while he's going through it and he will know that I am there. And so again, I said to the doctor, I said, I'm going to stay. And at that point, three nurses walk in. One's carrying a suture kit, one's carrying a sheet and some pillowcases, and another one wasn't carrying anything except a large amount of mass, right? He was huge, like 
big, huge. Um, and Bo was a champ. He was a trooper. He didn't fight as they put his arms into a pillowcase, right? And so that he couldn't, he couldn't hear having lateral control over them. And then they wrapped him from his neck down to his feet like a burrito, right? In a double wrap of a, of a, of a flat sheet. And then one of the nurses laid across his legs and another nurse laid across his chest. And then the big one, <laughs> the one with the hands the size of catcher's mitts, grabbed my son's head like a football. And it was in that moment that I realized what the doctor was talking about. <laughs> um, so he then grabs a giant needle, fills it with lidocaine, and I will leave the rest to your imagination. I know it was just stitches but it was traumatic for me to just stand there watching these grown people, these adult people seemingly torture my son. That's what it felt like. I'm, I'm being dramatic. It's what it felt like. And he knew I was there with him. He was begging for me to make them stop. He was screaming out my name, asking me for my help. At one point, he goes, Daddy, I promise I won't do it again. Oh, my gosh. And y'all, this guy was big, but I'm bigger. And trust me, I wanted to. I just wanted to body check him right out of there. I wanted to scoop up my kid and just run him out of the hospital room. And I could have done it. I was capable of it. But should I have? Should I have stepped in? Should I have done it? Would the alternative, would an alternative world where I rescued him from this moment been any better than if I didn't. Maybe I can imagine that world, right, where I scoop him up and run him out and there's no more fear and I'm the hero, I'm the superhero. But I can also imagine a world where desks are made out of pillows instead of wood. And that might be a better world too. But we live in a world where desks are made out of wood, not pillows. And I can't do anything to change that. And there's no alternative to fixing this injury it was too deep to heal on its own. It had to be put back together. And that healing was going to be painful. And even though I could have, right, even though I wanted to and I desperately wanted to, I should not have stopped them. Because if I had, the alternative would have been worse. I wonder how desperately Jesus wanted to take away his disciples' sadness. All right, let's go back into that room. Think about it. Why were they sad? Why were these disciples so sad? It's because he was telling them that they were leaving, and why it was he leaving? He was going to die. i got to imagine that desperation is too small of a word. I have to imagine that it's all Jesus wanted, right? A relative, excuse me, an alternative, alternative reality where he doesn't have to die. And I believe he could have avoided it. I believe he was who he says he was, and therefore could make an alternative way. But he didn't. There had to be a reason why. There had to be a reason why dying was worth it. The Apostle Paul says that, says this, for the joy set before him he endured the cross. The reason was joy, right? 
Not only was dying the only way, but he loved doing it because he loves us. We are that joy. We are the joy set before him as he endures the cross. We were and we are worth it, not because of anything we did or are going to do, but merely because we are. And the God of the universe created this world with you in mind, and I believe him when he calls us his tov me'od, the best of the best of the very, very best, that we can't, but to thrive, we can't live in a cage. We can't live in a cage. So he put us in a garden, and gardens are wild, and wild things are dangerous, and for every fruit tree, there's a snake, and for every beautiful rose, there's a painful thorn. And life is not about controlling and conquering that garden, but experiencing experiencing it fully with patience, self-control, kindness, and love. It's finding peace in your soul that God calls you his image and his masterpiece. Thanks, Mike. That that particular song, it means it means the lo- it means a lot to me. It means the world to me. I can hear my mom playing it on her piano right now. Um, but that song brings me comfort despite the fact that it's deeply connected to some pretty tragic moments in my life. Stories for a different time, but I hear it today and I hear God's voice in it. That no matter how smothered I feel, no matter how tight the grip of life feels like, I hear these songs and I hear songs like them and I'm reminded that I'm not alone. That I'm reminded by his voice that I'm still here and all I have is what I do with the time that I have been given. It's a choice. It's that choice that makes life worth living. So may you choose love. May you choose joy in spite of sadness. May you relish in the space between holding on to the moments of triumph where we're reminded that life is worth living. May you endure your cross with the joy set before you. And may you live with love as your engine. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday, friends.